And so we have been dealing with faith for really a personal revival. That's what we've been dealing with these last several days. And uh, so uh, we saw Sunday morning a picture of faith in the tower. We saw an explanation of faith there from Hebrews uh, and uh, so on on Sunday night. Last night we saw the foundation for faith for the personal revival. That literally there is this, this reality of a life stream because you're in Christ and he's in you. And thus we've been severed from that old master of indwelling sin. Raised with Christ that new man. A part of us made holy so the Holy Spirit could move in. But how do we apply it in day-in, day-out stuff of life? That's what we want to look at tonight. So, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10 here, verse 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. That means, dear friend, that you're not the only one that faces the temptations you face. Now, not everybody has the same bent, but you're not the only one with what you have. You're not weird. Aren't you glad you came tonight? <laughs> All right. So whatever you're tempted with, you're not the only one. It's common to man. But God is faithful. Who will not suffer or allow you to be tempted above or beyond that you're able. But will with the temptation also make a way to escape. That you may be able to bear it. Now, when the text says here that God makes a way to escape, technically, there's a definite article before the word way. In other words, the language underneath this is saying God makes the way to escape. And this is so important because the way lets us know that the, this, this concept of escape is not a formula. It's a person. I want to speak tonight on Jesus, the way of escape. Will you join me in prayer? Let's ask the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. Blessed Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are the eye opener. Now, would you take of what is Christ and show him unto us? Testify and glorify Jesus tonight in our hearts. Lord, move us from formulaic thinking to a, a, a reveling and rest in a person for the stuff of life. Lord, to the relationship that we are so privileged to have. Oh, Lord, open our eyes. And in that illumination, convince us of the truth as it is in Jesus. That he is the way of truth for life. So, Lord, tonight, use truth in Jesus to set us free. And I plead the blood, Lord, protect us from the attack of the enemy who seeks to hinder Lord Jesus, we claim the victory that you've won when you said it is finished. And the Lord, in your name, we're trusting you to protect us tonight from interference. And uh, we exercise your authority uh, over any powers of darkness that would seek to hinder and trust you that that not be allowed. Lord, we stand on the victory that you won when you said it is finished. So Lord, we trust you now to work, to breathe, to make this night count. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In the late 1960s, our family, at that time living in Chicago, 
uh, took a family vacation back to Durango, Colorado, <laughs> where we had moved from, from as I told you before. Uh, I think two nights ago. At any rate, of course, you get to Denver, and then you eventually got to get on Highway 160 uh, there uh, through the uh, Rocky Mountains. And uh, one of the passes you have to go over is Wolf Creek Pass. I'm sure you folk are familiar with that, or at least uh, many of you are. And uh, uh, today it's a four-lane highway, but in the, the late 1960s, the way I remember it, it was that it was a narrow two-lane road. So narrow that often, this is how I remember it as a kid, uh, you couldn't see the shoulder. In other words, you look out the window and you're looking down. I mean, way down because you can't see the edge. And uh, uh, wow, I mean, that means there's no guardrail. Not that it's going to help anyway if you lose your brakes. But nonetheless, it's kind of comforting to have that piece of metal out there. And uh, so, uh, you know, uh, we're going up the mountains. Now, uh, I have uh, two brothers, two sisters, so there's uh, five of us. And we had, uh, we had this vehicle called a station wagon. I realize young people don't know what a station wagon is, <laughs> uh, but uh, they can check with their grandparents. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but at any rate, so I'm number four in a line of five, so I'm relegated to the back of the station wagon. And as we're winding our way up Wolf Creek Pass, uh, my, uh, the older siblings were making comments uh, with the intended purpose of scaring the younger siblings, and it was working. <laughs> and I was scared. Now, when we were on the inside lane, close to the mountain wall, that was, you know, somewhat comforting. We were in the outside lane, Ah, uh, and you look out the window and you can't see the edge and you're looking down a thousand feet or whatever it is. You know, I, I was scared, no doubt about it. Well, finally we crested the top of Wolf Creek Pass. And uh, uh, then we began to make our way down. And, of course, uh, you folks know this well. On the uh, downside, they have placed strategically every so often escape ramps. And obviously, the big 18-wheelers need those. Uh, I drove a fifth-wheel trailer for 25 years. Uh, Ten of those years, I had a trailer that was 20,000 pounds. Uh, that was a big one. And, uh, and I had an automatic, not a stick, and so I couldn't hold it down in the lower gear. And so uh, uh, you're constantly dealing with having to hit your brake and try not to overuse your brake. And, you know, if you lose your brakes, you're going off the edge because you wouldn't be able to make the turn because of the speed picking up so fast. Well, when we were in that section of the mountains, I heard my parents and my older uh, siblings gasped with a gasp of horror that I knew was no longer a joke. I saw everyone's face looking a certain direction over the edge, and I stuck my little face in the window and followed their line of gaze. And when I say a thousand feet, I'm just guessing. I don't know how long, how far it was, but way down at the bottom in the ravine, there was an 18-wheeler just crumpled up like a piece of tinfoil, smashed. I would imagine that driver didn't make it. Perhaps because he didn't take the way of escape. Now, friends, in life, sometimes it gets dangerous. But we have a provision in a person. But if we ignore him, if we don't cultivate a relationship with him, then we miss the escape ramp and we are in trouble. And I want us to see from the provision of this text tonight uh, to see this truth in such a way that we learn that the Spirit of God just embedded this on our hearts to always take Jesus as the way of escape. Now, how does this practically play out? Well, it's very interesting. There is specific truth in Jesus. You notice here it says that God will make the way of escape. That's fascinating. There's a certain sense where God customizes the escape ramp to fit the, the, the danger uh, that you're facing at a given moment. In other words, God will provide the way of escape in Jesus according to the type 
of temptation that you and I are facing at a given moment. Now, broadly speaking, temptation hits us through the world, the flesh, and or the devil. But specifically, there are three approaches that the world, the flesh, and the devil take. And we need to know what approach is hitting us so that we grab hold of, take the uh, uh, specific truth in Jesus as the way of escape for that temptation that's approaching. The first one is the most obvious. It's temptation that approaches in the physical realm. You can see it, or you can hear it, or you can feel it, or perhaps even smell it. (laughs) My point is, it's in the sensory realm. It's in the physical realm. It's apparent. That means that these, this kind of temptation is not a direct attack, necessarily, from the enemy. Uh, most of the time, it's an indirect attack through worldly or fleshly snares. Years ago, I was in a meeting in the uh, Dairy Hills of southwest Wisconsin, and a pastor uh, there uh, who's also a farmer, and he's got the animals and the sheep and all sorts of stuff, and uh, his boys, you know, they're hunters, and, and they got traps, and they got snares, and they got all these furs hanging on the wall. It's really cool. And uh, so uh, uh, he was showing me how the traps work and the snares. You know, wow, this is fascinating. Now, as I've told you, I'm a city kid, you know, it's all new to me. I, I hadn't seen these things before other than the mousetrap. But uh, at any rate, uh, so uh, he's showing me all this. Well, what I, I learned from that, or I learned a lot, but one of the things I took away is, you know, when the trap is set, you're going to laugh at me for saying this, but, you know, when the hunter sets the trap, he doesn't sit down next to it, you know, with his lunch and wait for the animal to come. <laughs> no, he leaves the trap and goes his way and then comes back later to see what he's caught. Satan is a master hunter. And he, he and his cohorts have set traps and snares throughout our world system that we interact with every day that they know from centuries and millenniums of experience appeal to our flesh. But it does not necessarily mean that a demon is sitting there. Now the trap is set. They've gone on to somebody else or something else. Come back later to see, in this case, who they've caught. For example, how about a billboard? I drive a lot of miles. I mean, a lot of miles. And sometimes billboards are immensely helpful. Oh, Cracker Barrel, good. (laughs) Uh, You know, or whatever. Okay, Uh, sometimes it's immensely helpful. But sometimes, you know, it it can be a temptation to, uh, to something. Uh, for some people, uh, you know, it might be a temptation to covetousness. For others, there might be something that's a temptation to a, to a particular vice or addiction, if that's in their background. Uh, sometimes there's temptation to impure thinking. But whatever the case may be, when you see that billboard and you're tempted, you know where it's coming from. You saw it. Now, isn't Satan a master at using the venue of pictures to trigger all sorts of temptations? And now they're in the palm of our hands. But when that happens, you know where it's coming from. You can see it. See, it's apparent. Or how about an irritating circumstance? Ever have one of those? <laughs> you know, where you, uh, you know, uh, uh, something happens and, and you're, you're just tempted to get irritated. Uh, like one guy I was with, uh, where were several of us meeting after a service, and we were in a, in a house in a living room, and, 
and fellowshipping, and there was some food, and he was taking his plate out, and uh, there was a doorway to leave the living room and go down the hallway back to the kitchen, and right there was a, a, uh, a sofa table, and it had pointed corner corners, <laughs> and he wasn't watching, and one of those corners went in his mid-thigh about two inches. Well, maybe not, but you know, <laughs> and all of a sudden, you could see that face, and he's trying to maintain his dignity and his body just kind of slunk around the wall, got on the other side of the wall, so that his face could do what it really wanted to do. <laughs> you know, these things happen. There's something that's just kind of irritating. It's aggravating. Well, you know where it's coming from. In that case, you know, he, he bumped into the point, uh, the point of table. Or how about an abrasive comment somebody makes? <clears throat> just as mm, abrasive. And uh, you're tempted. I mean, it triggers the temptation to respond with a harsh word or with derogatory sarcasm, and you're really good at it, which takes practice. <laughs> but in all these examples that I've given, uh, you, you know where it's coming from. You can see it. You can feel it. You can hear it. You see, it's in the physical realm. So what do we do? Well, let's tap into what we saw last night. Here, the specific truth is Jesus in you. <laughs> See, he moved into us to live his life, not ours. And he moved into us to have his life imparted to us, to animate us. And a part of that is for help in times like this. It's by no means the only uh, uh, reason. But yes, he is in us. And when we access him, we access the right response. And so he moved in, Jesus in us, to deal with the down here so that there is his victor victorious life accessed over the world and the flesh. For example, Galatians 2.20, Christ lives in me. Now, it doesn't say Christ will live. It says Christ is living. Christ lives. See, it's present tense. Is living in me. So is that a promise or a fact? That's a fact. Okay, and we're going to see how important that is in a moment. But then the end of the verse, it says it's by faith. Okay, so we've got two things going on here. We have the provision, Christ living in us. And we focused uh, some time on that last night as the spirit of Jesus moves in. But without faith, we miss out on the full benefits. And so it's Christ, it says Christ lives in me, dot, 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 by faith. There has to be a faith or we miss out on the, the full benefit of why he is living in us. But when there is faith, we access him. And when we access him, his life easily counteracts and overcomes whatever trigger of temptation we're facing. Some of the guys who wrote articles in the fundamentals, I mentioned this uh, last night or the night before, I can't remember, uh, called this the principle of counteraction, uh, where a greater law counteracts and overcomes a lesser law. How about Romans 8, verse 2? For the law of the Spirit <laughs> of life in Christ Jesus. That's what we're talking about. Life in Christ. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. It does not say that the law of sin and death is no longer there. But we're free from it. See, a greater law counteracts and overcomes. Jesus said, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So if we access him, we just access the overcoming life. Himself. And so we have this Jesus in us so that through faith, we access his overcoming life. Now, our responsibility is to appropriate his divine life. You say, well, what does it mean to appropriate? It means to take. 
You say, well, why didn't you just say take? Well, appropriate sounds good, don't you think? <laughs> but the simplicity is take. So back to this difference again between promises, the Wilbys and Shelbys, that you ask for, to the facts that you take. Ah, let's word it this way. Let's use the word in 1 Corinthians 15, 57. Thanks be unto God, which, or literally who, is giving to us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, it's the same truth of Christ living in us. It's just worded in a way that I think can help us understand the appropriate step of faith. Thanks be to God who is giving us the victory, Jesus. So if he is giving, we can be taking. And if we're courteous, what would we say? Thank you. It's just like if somebody gives you a $100 bill after the service, you know, I just feel burdened to give this to you. If you're smart, what will you do? Take it. That was quick. <laughs> and if you're courteous, what would you say? Thank you. And that's why it says, thanks be unto God. Because you're taking. Because he's giving us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you take, now there's a divine supernatural left as the Spirit imparts Jesus to you. And in your spirit, you can discern this supernatural left. And now when you act, it's not just you trying to imitate. Unsaved moralists can mimic moral motions. But when you take, and now when you act, the Spirit imparts the overcoming life of Jesus, and he lifts you to counteract and overcome that trigger of temptation that is before you. So we're taking what is being provided, trusting to obey, taking to act, trusting and or literally to obey as he empowers us. Now, appropriation, we know what that is. Suppose you have uh, a checking account, and suppose you actually have money in it. Now, what would happen if you went to the bank and just decided you're going to use your own system instead of their system? And you go up to the teller and you give a speech as to why that bank should give you 500 bucks. And you wax eloquent. And you get emotional. <laughs> and shed tears. Well, they're going to quickly escort you out of there because that's not how you do this. But if you have that little slip of, slip of paper that has your information, your account number and so on, you get to appropriate, take, what is already yours so that you can act on it. Spend it. Now, friends, when you got saved, the bank account of heaven moved in. His name is Jesus. And what's so fascinating is we can take and take and take, and he never diminishes, unlike our checking accounts. He never diminishes. We can take. We can appropriate what is already ours in Christ, Christ in us. And now we can spend it. We can act on it. And there's that supernatural lift as the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus frees us from the law of sin and death. There's that principle of counteraction. Now, a greater law counteracting and overcoming a lesser law. It doesn't mean the lesser law is not there. It's just that there's a greater law that counteracts and overcomes it. For example, I am nearsighted. So if I take my glasses off, you have a great opportunity to go to sleep <laughs> without my knowing it. <laughs> because now things are blurred up. I can see that there's bodies in this audience, and I can see that these bodies have heads. 
but it's blurry, so I don't know if your eyes are open or closed. But if I put on my glasses, then the law of corrective lenses, we might say, counteracts and overcomes the law of nearsightedness. Now, it's not a once-for-all cure, because if I take my glasses off, it's all a blur again. But as long as I keep depending, there's our faith word again, on the provision of the glasses, then it keeps counteracting and overcoming the law of nearsightedness, and I can see clearly. By the way, it is amazing what preachers see when they preach. <laughs> we, can, we can write books on this. Did you know <laughs> that just as you can sit out there and look up here and see us, we can stand up here and look out there and see you. <laughs> and I'm amazed what people do right in front of us. I mean, it's so embarrassing, I can't even tell you. <laughs> I'm thinking, you know, we can see. But at any rate, back to our point here. <laughs> the greater law counteracting and overcoming the lesser law. So here's the billboard. Here's the temptation, let's say, to think impurely. And we can take Jesus. See, this is not a formula. If, if, if your mentality is formula, then you're not even going to want Jesus when you need him. But when you're walking with a person, then this trigger hits. You can say, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. In other words, it's not a set words. It's a transaction of trust as you look into Jesus. Amen. And friends, when you do, he frees you to act on it. In this case, to look the other way, this is what's neat. To be free from what you saw as if you didn't see it. Now, in the power of the flesh, you can say, oh, that's bad. Okay, neck, go this way. And we can turn our neck while our heart stays that way. And that is not victory. But when you take Jesus, thank you, Jesus, he frees you to actually look the other way and be free. Free from what you saw as if you didn't see it. The irritating circumstance. You know, you step on that Lego, and you don't have your shoe on. And the, the Lego doesn't break, but it feels like your foot does. And you are tempted to say things that may not be appropriate, <laughs> or to throw things <laughs> that don't have wings. Oh, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and you know, you can take Jesus. My dear grandmother, her book's on the deck. There's one copy left, uh, her biography on the table. She, she knew this. And when, when those situations that would happen that would just, you know, irk the fire out of me, she'd start giggling because she looked unto Jesus. And uh, it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt, <laughs> depending on the scenario. But there is an access of the overcoming life himself. I remember, Brother uh, uh, Pastor uh, Daniel, when I was at uh, your church one time, I was dealing with this, and after the service, a lady, and she had these kids all pulling on her skirt, and she says, you know, uh, so tell me how this works again, because I, I've got to get this. She said, you know, let's suppose, well, this is not a suppose. I guarantee you this was a real scenario. She says, let's suppose I've just cleaned the bathroom. And the next thing I know, my kids are in there tearing it apart. And just at that moment, 
One of her kids went over in the lobby there at the church. There was a, a, a glass bowl filled with little tiny little decorative rocks or something like that. And grabbed it and went, poof, she just poured it all out. <laughs> Why would she's asking me this question about how do you respond when things like this happen? And she looked at it and looked at me. <laughs> and she burst out laughing as she saw what was going on here. You see, it's, it's a, how do you say, it's a simple look to Jesus. One lady asked me earlier this year in Athens, Georgia. She says, yeah, but at work, she says, she says I got these people that it just, you know, they drive me crazy. <laughs> and she says, you know, how do I do this? I, I hear what you're saying, but how? I said, well, just like you look to Jesus to actually save you when you got saved, you look to him to actually free you, deliver you. She goes, okay. <laughs> the next night, she gave a testimony experiencing Jesus as she looked with that simple look of faith that accesses the overcoming life and there's the supernatural left that frees you to take the appropriate action step. You take and now you can act and there's divine power to actually act. How about the abrasive comment? I remember one meeting after the service. I don't remember why, but a lady was very upset and I mean, she was letting me know what she thought, and she was being really ugly about it. I'm not saying she was ugly. I'm saying she was, <laughs> she was acting ugly. And, you know, the temptation is to just, uh, in the very least, condescend, even if you don't say anything. And I remember in my heart thinking, Lord, you're love. And immediately, my whole perspective toward that lady completely changed as the love of God was shed abroad in my heart, which was already there, but as I accessed the strength, the life stream that we talked about last night. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I can't do that on my own. But Jesus can love the unlovely. And he's in us. He's in you. See, whatever kind of scenario we're talking about, when we take him, when we actually look to him, and again, in that moment of looking, you may not feel anything, but when you take him, that's when there's the infusion of that divine life, that impartation, and you experience grace, that uh, spirit imparting to you the very life of Jesus. But, let's move on, not all temptation approaches through the physical realm. Secondly, there's temptation that approaches through the spiritual realm. In other words, it's not sensory. It's in a different realm. You see, this would be the unseen realm. These would be actually direct attacks from the enemy to our soul, primarily our minds and or our emotions. The Bible calls this in Ephesians 6, fiery darts, or literally flaming arrows. You see, sometimes there's temptation and you're wondering, why am I being tempted by this? See, because you can't see, hear, or feel anything. It's just that you're being tempted. Um, Sometimes people feel discouraged. And they're just in a bad mood. You ever find yourself in a bad mood and you don't know why? I asked one congregation, you ever find yourself in a bad mood and everybody looked at a certain person? <laughs> it was hilarious. But sometimes we're just in this dark, bad mood. And there's nothing in the physical realm. It's not like something happened 
that could tempt you to get discouraged. It's just that you have this discouragement or this bad mood or this depression, whatever it is. Or how about you're just spiritually dull? And you may know enough to say, Lord, is there something wrong that's grieved you? Why is there spiritual dullness? And when you ask him to search your heart and nothing comes to mind, it means it's not a sin issue. It's a flaming arrow. Or how about you're focused on something, maybe at work, maybe at home, and all of a sudden, a series of vile thoughts comes rolling across your brain. And you're thinking, good night. Where did that come from? I remember preaching one time and a fellow came to me. He said, you know, I was actually, it was a gospel service and I was preaching on health, very difficult subject. And uh, he said, you know, as you were preaching, he said, boy, he said, I didn't, I didn't want to miss anything. I was, I was hanging on every word. And he said, right in the middle of the message, he said, uh, he said, all of a sudden, I was just bombarded with these vile thoughts. He looked at me and said, do you think that could have been from the devil? <laughs> well, let's stop and think about this. He's not on a beach where there might be things that could, you know, uh, tempt you. He's, he's in a church service. It's a difficult message. It's on hell. He wants to hear every word. Yeah, obviously. See, that's a flaming arrow. We need to learn to discern where the attack is coming from because it's going to make a difference then in the truth that is in Jesus that we apply. Now, in the physical realm, and we saw in the first point, we have Jesus in us to deal with the down here over the world and the flesh. But this isn't the down here. This is the spiritual realm. So what's the truth here? It's you in Jesus. See, the answer is still Jesus. But Jesus is in us to deal with down here, but we're in him to deal with up there. This is spelled out for us in Ephesians 1 and 2, where God displayed his mighty power when he raised Christ from the dead and set him at his own right hand. That's the throne, that's authority, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. Chapter 2, and you. Verse 6, I love this. He's raised us up together. See, he talked about him being raised. And made us sit together. Chapter 1 was about him sitting on the throne at the right hand of the Father. And it says, made us sit together in heavenly places. Do you realize that that phrase, in heavenly places, it's all through Ephesians. But in chapter 6, when it talks about the enemy and talks about spiritual hosts of wickedness in high places, same words underneath it. See, it's a realm. Because remember, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father far above. See, there's a realm, okay? But now, chapter 2 says, we were raised together with him. And we're seated together in those heavenly places, in him, which means far above who? The enemy. All principalities and powers. My friends, this is stunning. The moment you got saved, we saw it last night in Galatians chapter 3, you got baptized into Christ. You're in him. See, that's the spiritual realm. And that spiritual realm, the spiritual dimension, does not have the geographical boundaries that we have in the physical realm. See, physically, you're right here in Loveland, Colorado. But for every child of God in this room, everyone who's saved, regardless of how long you've been saved, regardless of your age, regardless of how spiritually mature you are, and regardless of how long you've been right with God, if you're right with God. Period. If you're in Christ, cheer in Him! Even if you're not right with God, you're still in him. He didn't kick you out. You're in him. Now, friends, there's no geographical boundaries here because 
this is what's fascinating. We're, you know, physically we're right here, but spiritually we're there. By the way, this is, why, this is why and how you can do battle in the spiritual realm with the powers of darkness in a place like India as if you're there from here. But my point is, we are in him there and he is on the throne. It's what it says in Ephesians 1 and 2. I'm having to move through this quickly. But Ruth Paxson, missionary of China, 1930s, puts it this way. In Christ, we are as far above the power of Satan as Christ is. I mean, that is staggering, stunning truth. And if we were in North Carolina, where Brother Moore's from, we could pull out our handkerchiefs and wave them. <laughs> I mean, that is hanky-waving truth. We are in Christ far above all principality and power. It's glorious. I used the terminology hanky-waving truth to the Michigan audience at my home church, and they looked at me like deer in the headlights. <laughs> bunch of northerners you know and uh, then a couple of months later we had a guy come through a missionary from west virginia and just in the providence of god i happened to be preaching that sunday and uh, while i'm preaching all of a sudden that hanky came out man he's waving that hanky and all these michiganders are going oh, that's it uh, hanky waving truth <laughs> the guy was really good too he could throw his hanky up in the air let go of it and on the way down grab the corner of it and snap it <laughs> that took practice i gotta tell you but friends, this is stunning. You and I are in him. See, he's in us to impart divine ability. We're in him to access divine authority over the enemy. And now through faith, there's the principle of counterattack. Because Ephesians says we can lift up the shield of faith, which quenches. It doesn't just deflect fiery darts. It puts them out. It counterattacks and over rules. So again, we get to appropriate, we get to take Christ's divine authority to counterattack and overrule the powers of darkness. That is, we're claiming our protection, our, our provision, our position in Him on the throne, far above all principality and power, and exercising, see now acting on it, take an act, exercising His delegated authority to extinguish the flaming arrows. Now friends, We've got to believe this. We've got to let the Spirit of God sink this in. Do you realize, according to Genesis 3.15, the first gospel, where it said that the day would come when the seed of the woman, Jesus, would bruise the head of the serpent, the enemy. For us, that's past tense. Satan's head has already been crushed. You see, Jesus said just a few hours before the cross in John 16.11, the prince of this world is judged. Again, referring to the cross, John 12, 31 and 2, the prince of this world is cast out. Colossians 2, 15, the Lord Jesus through death destroyed, that is, deprived of his power, him who, uh, or excuse me, uh, spoiled principalities and powers, that is, disarmed principalities and powers, triumphing over them in it. And then I got ahead of myself, Hebrews 2, 14, that Jesus through death destroyed, that is, deprived of his power, him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, isn't it interesting all of that's going to be fully manifested as we read in the book of Revelation. But he's already been dealt the death blow. He's already been dealt the defeating blow. And here's what we've got to understand. In the spiritual realm, which is what we're talking about right now, Satan is at a disadvantage. Because right now, in that realm, he is totally defeated. And friends, you and I have the privilege of taking the reality that we are in Christ. We can claim our position in Him on the throne and act on that, exercise His authority 
against the powers of darkness. See, we have delegated authority over the enemy. Jesus is the head. It's his authority, not ours. But we're the body. We have to exercise it. And let me ask you a question. Can a body function without a head? No. I did see a few chickens try on that ranch in Durango. <laughs> when they got beheaded, uh, the bodies ran around like a chicken. <laughs> oh, that's where that comes from, uh, with their head cut off. But eventually those bodies drop. So a body cannot function without a head. Well, let me ask you this. Can a head function without a body? No. Some of you look like you're not sure. but <laughs> A head cannot function without a body. Now, Jesus is the head in the imagery of the inspired text in Ephesians. We are the body. As the body, we cannot function without him as the head. As the head, he has chosen not to function in certain areas without us as the body. And if we don't, by faith, exercise the provision he gives, we miss out and get pummeled by the defeated foe. Now, friends, we've got to grab this because it's powerful. So let's, let's apply it in the, uh, uh, the, real, uh, you know, the reality of life because if we lift up the shield of faith in this uh, uh, scenario, uh, there is a counterattack that goes on. Those, those fiery darts are quenched. They are extinguished. They're put out. So let's say you wake up in the morning and uh, uh, you open your Bible and you spend some time with the Lord and it's a wonderful time. Isn't it wonderful when God speaks to you? Oh, wow, it's just amazing. And, uh, and uh, so you uh, have this sweet fellowship, and so you go to, go to work, and your heart is full. And, and then about three hours later, the thought occurs to you, oh, man, wow, do I feel discouraged. Okay, we've got to just stop and discern where is the temptation approaching from. So we should ask ourselves, okay, did anything happen that would tempt me to get discouraged? Oh, yeah, <laughs> I just got fired. <laughs> Well, if that's the case, go back to point one. But if nothing comes to mind, it's a flaming arrow. And that is when you can say, wait a second, I claim my position in Jesus. See, that's taking the reality that you're in him and he's far above the enemy. And I reject this discouragement that's acting on it. That is exercising his authority. That is lifting up that shield of faith that quenches that fiery dart. It is submitting yourself to God, resisting the devil. And he's got to flee. And friends, the moment you do that, there's a supernatural lift in your spirit that is discernible, which means you pegged it right, the right truth for the right attack. It's important for us to get this. You say, well, what, what if I don't know if it's physical or spiritual? Well, just try both. Whatever works, that's what it was. <laughs> because truth always sets free. So he's in us to deal with down here, but we're in him, uh, down here, but we're in him to deal with the up there. How about the spiritual normals? I was in a meeting in Pennsylvania, and two guys were just you know, were having a fellowship time after the Sunday service, and uh, they were bemoaning uh, how they were reading their Bible but not getting anything out of it for days. And I said, well, have you asked God to search her? Yeah, yeah, we've done that, but no, he's not bringing anything to mind. I said, guys, that means it's not a sin issue. And I began to explain what we just went over. And both of those guys went home and applied the truth, and at the end of the week, they both gave a public testimony of what was happening and how they took their position in Christ and rejected the attack of dullness and were free. And that every morning the Bible was alive and they reveled. You know what? That's real. 
That's real. How about the wrong thoughts? Here you are, you're thinking about this, you're at work or at home, you're working on something, and all of a sudden something hits your brain, thinking, good grief, where'd that come from? Well, look, if you're not in a setting where there's a physical trigger, it is a flaming arrow from the enemy. And the moment you recognize it, you can say, I claim my position in Jesus. Let's take. And I reject that. That's acting. In other words, it's not a set of number of words. It's a trust in a person. I take Jesus, his authority. And that's when those thoughts are gone. And you're free. So we have his divine ability to deal with the down here, his divine authority to deal with the up there. But there's a third approach. Sometimes the approach of temptation comes through combined causes. Where you do have something in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm, it's distorted. It's magnified, we might say. Let's say somebody says something to you that's a bit abrasive, it's a bit unkind, but quite frankly, um, it wasn't that big of a deal. I mean, it's just the difference between a New Yorker talking to a Southerner. <laughs> or whatever. And, uh, uh, but <laughs> what if the enemy puts a magnifying glass over that little bump in the road comment so that you don't see it as a bump in the road? You see it as a mountain-sized offense. And if you're not discerning and you don't walk in the Spirit and you get carnal... And it draws all the fury that a mountain-sized offense might draw out of you. But it really was a small thing. And everybody else is thinking, man, what's the matter with you? Wasn't that big a deal? And Satan's laughing. Don't you think this is at the bottom of a lot of church splits and splinters? Where this comment or this action that was not a big deal gets magnified? Distorted? See, Satan's a deceiver. He's a liar, Jesus said, the father of lies. Distortion, inordinate, attraction. You know, if you're at the store and then you just have this compulsive push, you've got to buy this right now. Okay, now think. As Tozer said, impulsiveness is a sign of the flesh. Well, that's a problem. But compulsiveness is a sign of the enemy. See, the Holy Spirit leads, Satan pushes. And so if there's this push, you've got to buy it right now. And there's no time to test the spirits, as 1 John 4 tells us to. Then reject it. It's the enemy. Say, no, I'm not buying that. And every husband said? <laughs> it affects all of us. Sometimes there's an inordinate attraction to somebody of the opposite gender. And here you are married, and this is not appropriate. And if you stopped and thought about it, forgive me for saying this, they're not even attractive. I'm telling you, this is ripping up families right now. I could tell you stories that are just would make you sick. None of it makes sense. See, Satan's a liar. He distorts. Sometimes there's just this uncommon, excessive distraction. Well, you know, distractions can happen. But when it gets excessive, see, excessiveness is a sign of the enemy. And you can recognize, oh, wait a second. There's, there's something going on here. See, 
What happens is, when you have the physical and the spiritual brought together, it's Satan taking something in the physical realm, but magnifying it, honing in on you, in an attempt to draw you off the position of faith so that you're rendered powerless against him. Do you know that what I've just gone over in the last 10 to 12 minutes, most Christians have never heard? Because Satan doesn't want them to hear it. Because you can be eight years old and apply this truth, and God moves. When my son was in elementary school, he remembered the excessiveness thing, and at a, at a junior church, a kid was biting the teacher. That's a bit excessive. And he applied the truth. God, I claim you to deal with that. I don't know how he said it. And immediately the kid stopped. Because the authority is Jesus not our spiritual maturity or our performance. And friends, this is marvelous because we need this because without it, we get pummeled and don't know what's going on and can't understand it. But sometimes there's that excessive distraction, as I was saying. I remember one time I was getting ready to go overseas over to Asia, and uh, this was quite a while ago, and, and uh, uh, there were some certain things I wanted to study because I didn't want to have to bring certain books with me uh, over there. And I don't even remember why. Uh, but uh, my son and I needed to get haircut. And so I thought, well, when he's in the chair, I'm going to be studying because I've got to get this done. And so, uh, you know, for us who travel, we're, we're always at risk when we go to a barber because we don't know if they're good or not. So I'd always put my son in the chair first. <laughs> and I have left before without staying for mine. <laughs> he finally figured it out. <laughs> but, <laughs> so I got him in the chair, and I pull up my books. I'm studying. Well, you know, barbershop, they got TV on usually, and usually it's a ball game or a fishing show or something like that, you know. Uh, so I, I'm studying away, and I, I, I turned this way. John's face was out the window, and I looked at this screen, and it was not a ball game. It was wicked. And I remember thinking, good night. Taking Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You know, he freed me to get back into my study, but... As I get in my study, I, you know me, I, I don't stay still. And so I turned and, oh, man, there it is again. Well, after about the fifth time, I thought, this is crazy. I can't stay focused. I'm losing all this time. And, uh, you know, obviously there's something in the physical realm. I've got a TV over here. But, you know, maybe there's something in the spiritual realm. This is not what they normally play in any barbershop I've ever been to before or since. And so I just learned this truth. And I thought, okay. So we got other people sitting there. I'm, I didn't do this out loud. <laughs> I just said, Lord. If Satan has anything to do with why that's on right now, I claim my position in you. See, that's taking. And I exercise your authority against the powers of darkness that are behind us. That's acting on it. Something along those lines. And at that moment, the barber, you know, barbers are calm guys, you know. He's got the razor and he's going up the back of the guy's neck, you know, and they're just talking away. But at that moment... Both of his arms began to visibly tremble and he pulled that shaver away from that guy's head. <laughs> I never did check the back of that guy's neck. Uh, but he, he literally began to tremble and he, and he put that razor down on the, on the counter and he, he reached for the remote control and changed the channel to something decent. And I wanted to shout hallelujah because God just stepped in. Amen. See, that's what we're talking about. See, this is the privilege of God's children. And the answer is Jesus. He's the way of escape. He and us to deal with down here us and him to deal with up there, and sometimes both together. Now, a couple of takeaways. It says in this text something very helpful that lets us know that the way of escape is time sensitive. 
Notice it says, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt tempted above that you're able? Let's be honest. Has it ever seemed just overwhelming? Like, oh man, I just I don't have a choice. Okay, what's going on? Because we don't really want to be honest because it says, God is faithful, will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able. And yet we're thinking, well, experientially it sure seems like that. Well, the key is the, the last two phrases, the last part of the verse. But will with the temptation also make the way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. So when does God provide the way of escape in practical reality? It says with the temptation. See, it's when you're tempted, that's when you have the window of opportunity. That's when you have the escape ramp. So we're tempted. And that old master that we got severed from, we talked about last night, but he still hangs around on our soul and body level. And there's that trigger of temptation, and he says, go for it. And we feel it. And the Holy Spirit says, no, no. Trust me. And so you have this little moment of decision. <laughs> oh, maybe I'm, ah, no, I should. Okay, what happens is, if we're not careful, we begin to follow after the temptation. And at that moment, you just entered the temptation, which means you just passed the way of escape. But it may be of a nature that it hasn't played out fully yet. That's when it seems overwhelming. That's when it seems like, oh, man, I didn't have a choice. It's because when we did have a choice, we made the wrong choice. So the key is to take Jesus immediately. Somebody says, well, how much time do you have? Well, my friend Jim Shetler said he heard years ago an old preacher say you got four seconds. <laughs> I think he's about right. Because you have that opportunity where all of this is happening, then you become cognizant of what is happening. Now you've got to make the right choice. And friends, there is the opportunity. Why? Because God is faithful. But it's time sensitive. Secondly, on the takeaways... The way of escape is preventative. It's the way to escape. And this is so neat. That means that what we're talking about is not a matter of correction. It's a matter of prevention. You see, it's not a matter of confession. It's a matter of deliverance. Now, confession is needed when you did enter into the temptation in thought or obviously in action. Now you need to get right with God and walk in the light, confess your sins, and the blood of Jesus cleanses you. Praise the Lord. But that's confession. That's getting right. This is staying right. Now, let me ask you a question. Is temptation sin? Okay, you gave the right answer. No. Now let me see if you believe what you said. <laughs> if when you're tempted... You find yourself immediately confessing it. And if you do, then you really believe that it is sin. But it's not. Jesus was tempted, Hebrews tells us. And all points like his way, yet without sin, which means the temptation cannot be sin in and of itself. We've got to get this because that part's often out of our control. If temptation itself is sin, we're in trouble. I mean, because we're tempted, and there's triggers and stuff, and now we're... But temptation is not sin. That's why Jesus said, pray that you don't enter into it. 
because the temptation is not sin unless you enter into it, which means then it's a matter of deliverance, not confession. You see, confession is for cleansing because you didn't take the way of escape. Whereas, if you're tempted, that's not sin. And if you've not yet entered the temptation, here's the deception. If you confess it, you just entered the temptation. You say, how so? Because when you confessed it, you said, that's me. You just owned it and you just entered. What a deception. People who have oversensitive consciences, believe me, <laughs> I've had to deal with this. And before I understood this truth, I had that sensitive conscience. Man, if there was any temptation, I'm, I'm immediately in confession mode. You know what I did all day? Confess. It's like an anthem. Confess, confess, confess. You know, anthems, they say the same thing. You know? And so uh, all day long, I'm confessing. By the end of the day, you're just pummeled. It's a joyless Christianity. But we've got to get this. The solution here is not confession, because temptation is not sin. So if you confess it, you are unwittingly saying, that's me. You're owning it and unwittingly entering into temptation, and instead of getting relief, you sink. This can be life-changing if you understand what I'm saying and have had the same propensity. You see, the way of escape is a matter of rejecting the temptation, not accepting it. You see, it doesn't matter if it's from the world, the flesh, or the devil. It's not you. Obviously, a flaming arrow is not you. Obviously, a trap in the world is not you. You say, but yeah, but what when I feel that pull inside of me? That's not you. If you were here last night, you understand. Because you died with Christ unto indwelling sin. You got severed from that sin master. Not sins, but the guy in us, that entity in us that urges us to commit sins. And yes, we feel that pull. That is not us. We got severed from that guy. We were raised with Christ the new man. The Holy Spirit moved in. We're joined in Jesus. The real us is righteous. And the real us wants Jesus every time. And friends, when that happens and we feel that pull, that is not us. And we have the privilege of saying, that's not me. <laughs> I reject that. I claim Jesus. And the moment you do, you experience freedom that is available in Christ. One last takeaway, the way of escape is trustworthy. Why? His name is Jesus. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And friends, he is the way of truth for life, not just in salvation, but for everything. And he is trustworthy in his availability. God is faithful. And he is trustworthy in his dependability that ye may be able to bear it. Because it's him animating you. You've accessed the victorious life himself. So may we learn to always take Jesus, the way of escape. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Thank you again for your listening tonight. I wonder who tonight would say, Preacher, God has opened my eyes. I could envision scenarios where I've gone down, and now I can see, wow, if I applied this truth, I'd have been protected, and God's connecting dots for me. If you'll give that testimony, would you raise the hand, please? Sure, many hands. All right, now let me, let me get real specific on the takeaways. I wonder who would say, Preacher, you know that time-sensitive thing, that's where I'm blowing it. I dilly-dally around, I think, maybe I will, maybe I won't, and then the next thing I know, it seems overwhelming, and now I realize the reason it seems like I don't have a choice is because when I did have a choice, I made the wrong choice, and I've got to learn to take Jesus right away, immediately. God spoke to me about that. Would you raise the hand if that's you? Yes, 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 yes. All right, how about the preventative thing? This, for me, was life-changing. 
I wonder who would say, preacher, I'm one of those with that sensitive conscience. And as soon as I'm tempted, I, I think, yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm confessing it. Even if I say that it's temptation, it's not sin, I'm acting like it is because I'm confessing it. And you're right. I sink instead of get help. And God's opened my eyes that I need to reject it, not confess it. That's going to make a difference. That you, would you raise the hand, please? Yes, 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 yes. A number of hands tonight. Wonderful. I wonder who said, Preacher, I need to be reminded that the way of escape is trustworthy, that Jesus is always available, and that he's dependable, that if I take him, he will not fail. God spoke to me. Would you raise the hand, please? All right, several more. Now, I wonder if there's someone here tonight that said, Preacher, you know, if I, if I died tonight, as far as I know, I could be dropping into hell. Let me tell you, friend, Jesus is the way of escape from hell, too. He really is. He's the Savior. Is there anyone in this audience that would say, Preacher, if I died right now or 10 years from now, I don't know that my sins are forgiven. I do not know I have eternal life. Please pray for me. If that's you, would you raise the hand? Anyone at all? Then let's take some time to talk to Jesus, shall we? As the pianist plays, if you'd like, you can get on your knees. If you'd like, you can come and get on your knees. But bottom line is, talk to God about what he's talking to you about. Let's just take a few moments. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are in us and we are in you and you are the overcoming life. Help us to love you. Oh, Spirit of God, remind us in the moment of Jesus and may we learn to always take our provision in him. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.